Well, before we come to the preaching of God's word, let us stand briefly as we commit our way unto him in prayer. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to thee at this juncture in our service this evening. And we lay ourselves down at thy feet. We confess, O Lord, our inability. We confess, O Lord, our weakness, our frailty. O Lord, what are we but dust and ashes? O we marvel, O Lord, that in thine infinite wisdom it has so pleased thee to appoint means such as this to the propagation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. O we marvel that thou hast said it is by the foolishness of preaching that thou hast ordained sinners to be saved. For those that believe to be drawn to Christ. This now is our prayer. Draw souls to Christ. We pray in the preaching of the gospel that nothing would be said that would be against thy word. O guard us, O Lord, from carelessness. Help us to be precise. Help us to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ and that alone. Oh, might none be seen but Jesus only. But oh Lord, might he be seen. Might he be seen this evening with the eye of faith. Oh Lord, can these dry bones live? Thou knowest, oh Lord, that they can live. Breathe life into dead sinners this evening, we pray thee. Edify the people of God. Feed us, O Lord, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Comfort our hearts. Encourage us. Build thy church that the gates of hell would not prevail against. So now, Lord, we pray for thy promised spirit that thou would give unction from on high that thou would give liberty and utterance in the preaching of thy word and in the hearing of thy word. There will be a work done this evening in the cause of Christ for his honor and for his glory. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, turn with me, please, back to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. And we will be taking as our text this evening the words of verses 25 and 26. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? When death comes to a family, whether it be in tragic circumstances, whether it be after lingering illness, or whether it be the petering out of life after a long life, whatever the circumstances for those who mourn, for those who are bereaved, 
there is something of an understandable searching for answers. Why? Grief can be overwhelming. It can cloud the judgment. It can be difficult to reconcile all of the implications and all of the finality of it. When someone that we love has died, what we have recorded here in this passage in John 11 is one such situation. We have a grief-stricken household. As Jesus puts it, and those unavoidable words in verse 14, this is the summary of the entire situation faced by that little home in Bethany. Lazarus is dead. This little band of siblings in Bethany, they appear to be very close to one another. We see that Jesus himself loved Martha and he loved her sister Mary, and he loved Lazarus in verse 5. This was a home of love. Here then in John 11, we have this moving scene of bereavement that has come crashing in upon this home. Martha and Mary are heartbroken. They are consumed with their grief. Everything else that had been a care to them five days before, everything that seemed to be so important to them, now, well, now it just seems so irrelevant in comparison. It has all faded into insignificance as they struggle to come to terms with the sudden death of their brother Lazarus. Now, unsurprisingly, their main struggle that we meet with in this passage is their immediate loss. Lazarus. Lazarus who was there just a few days before. Lazarus who sat in that chair is now dead. He is no longer there. The chair is empty. They had sent for Jesus when Lazarus was unwell. But from the narrative, we can tell that by the time that messenger reached the Savior, Lazarus had already died. When Jesus arrived in Bethany, he found that Lazarus had lain in the grave four days already. The funeral is past. The body is in the grave, but the grief is still there. Our text in verses 25 and 26, they sit in the middle of a dialogue between Martha and Jesus. In her distraught condition, Martha pours out her anguish to the Lord. She says, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. These words of Martha, they're not a rebuke. She's not chastising the Lord. They're not words of doubt, but or, nor are they words of faith. These words are simply the raw expression of an overwhelming grief. 
Her mind was filled with this very present problem of the loss of her brother. Yet when Jesus gives her this cause for hope, when he says, thy brother shall rise again, she immediately acknowledges this future power. She says, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. So although she is plagued in her mind with this present, this immediate problem of the loss of her beloved brother, yet she looks forward in faith to a time when he will be raised again at the last day. But as we come this evening to consider Jesus' response to Martha, we see his tenderness. Oh, we see his pastoral care for his sheep. But what we find in his response that Martha's perspective was wrong. She was off beam. And so we find that the Savior gently corrects her perspective. He shows her that the real problem is not the immediate problem. It's not now. The real problem sits in the past. He shows her that the power of, of the resurrection is not the power in the future. The power is now in the present. And he speaks to her of a hope yet to come. A hope in the future. We take up then this evening the teaching of Jesus, how he deals with Martha under this title, Death, Life, and Eternity. The first thing we want to notice in our text is that Jesus identifies the past problem he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead. Despite Martha's immediate grief about losing Lazarus, in these words, though he were dead, Jesus, as it were, is taking a step back from this immediate problem. He doesn't say to Martha, forget Lazarus, forget your problems. He's very gentle. Though he were dead. You see, in all that Martha had said about the resurrection, I know he will rise again in the resurrection yet to come at the last day. In all that she had said, she is thinking only of this, the reunion of the soul and the body, the physical resurrection of the body in the last day. But here Jesus is speaking of a different kind of death. Here Jesus is not talking about the soul leaving the body when he says, though he were dead. Here he is speaking of a real death. A death of which we could say that physical, the physical death of the body is in one sense but an illustration. So see here then that it is not so much the physical death now or even the physical death yet to come that is the problem, but the entrance into spiritual death in the past. That is the problem that faces Martha and Mary, that faces every one of us here this evening. When Jesus here speaks of he that is dead, he is drawing this sharp contrast between the life that is in Christ and the death that cleaves to every man and woman ever born into this world of natural parents. 
He speaks of life and of death on a higher plane from what Martha has in mind. Christ draws the great distinction between life and death that has existed in the world ever since the fall of man. When God said to Adam in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Adam didn't die for 960 years. What did God mean? Did Adam not die that day? Yes, Adam died that day, a spiritual death. As Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Here then this evening is the real problem, friends. The real problem is not that Lazarus' soul has left his body. The real problem is not that Lazarus' body has lain in the grave for four days and now stinketh. The real problem is the entrance of sin into this world. The real problem is that perpetual memorial of the curse of sin. The entrance of death. That there is death at all in this world. That's the problem. The real problem is not the present problem of a dead brother. The real problem is a past problem of the failure of Adam to keep the law of God. But also this past problem affects all mankind. This is the real reason why Lazarus has now died. Lazarus has died because Adam sinned. There's no other cause of it. Every death, every death points us back to this past problem. Every death is a sermon on sin. Every death is a reminder that Adam failed. And when Adam failed, death entered into the world. In Romans 5.12, the Apostle Paul puts it like this, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Why has Lazarus died? Because by one man sin entered into the world. And death by sin. See how in these words. How our saviour is as it were catching Martha's gaze. Her mournful grieving gaze and he is gently directing it back to the source of all the true sin and the true misery in the world. The source of all the sickness, the source of all the death, of all grief. Every pang of grief that you've ever experienced, we can trace it back to that problem of sin entering into this world by one man. He is saying, as it were, Martha, there's a greater problem with mankind than the immediate loss of your brother. Well, he doesn't say it in so many words. He's gentle. He is sensitive to her grief. But she begins to see that grief that is borne by the Savior 
as he surveys, as it were, in a glance, the entire mass of death, the entire uh, humanity of decay that has fallen on his own creation from the beginning of the race. He can see it all in a moment, all of that grief in a moment. He shares her grief. He grieves over the problem of sin like no man has ever grieved. Jesus wept because he saw in a moment all of the grief of mankind that was caused by sin entering into this world. The problem of sin, the problem of spiritual death, it is infinitely more heartrending than the immediate loss of a loved one. But also this spiritual death is much more serious than physical death because it lasts beyond the grave. The main subject of what Christ has to say relates to spiritual life. That's his message to Martha. I am the resurrection. I am the life. But inevitably, this message of the Savior confronts us with this death. The problem is not a temporary problem. When Adam sinned, he plunged the entire human race into this spiritual death. Just as the offense against the eternal God was of an eternal value, so the curse of the eternal law is an eternal curse. The finality of the physical death. That sense of finality that you have when you grieve. That sense of emptiness. In a sense it is but a token of that finality of spiritual death. This day that Martha had in her mind. This day of the resurrection to come. It's spoken of in scripture as a day of judgment. As a day of reckoning. A day of crisis. In 2 second, second Thessalonians, it's spoken of there It's a, as a day in which those who do not believe in Jesus Christ shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. This then is the first thing we notice this evening. The true problem is a past problem. It is the problem of the entrance of sin into the world and death by sin. For any Marthas in the gathering this evening, perhaps you mourn the loss of a loved one. Maybe you feel the gap, the emptiness, that dread finality of it all. That feeling that it will never be the same again. But what your Savior does for you this evening if you're a child of God is this. He is directing your attention in these words not to look at the emptiness, not even to look forward to the future, not to dwell on the memories no matter how happy. What he would have you to see this evening is the true nature of death. It is the entrance of sin into this world that has brought death with it. Death is the memorial of sin, dysfunction and evil and misery and all the calamities that befall mankind. All of it points us back to the entrance of sin into this world. 
But oh, is there not a cry here to those in this meeting tonight who are outside of Christ? Who have no saviour to turn to this evening? You who sit here this evening in your sin. The message to you is simply this. You are a sinner. You inherit your guilt from Adam. It was by his fall that sin entered in. And by that sin came death and death passed upon all men. Let me ask you, friend, this evening, do you believe that you're going to die one day? There is your evidence that you are under the curse of sin. You're a living corpse if you're outside of Christ. You're dead in your trespasses and your sins. And your eternal death has already commenced. You are now this moment as you sit here this evening. You are under the wrath and condemnation of the holy God as a sinner. But there is a reason why physical death brings with it that cold feeling of finality. It's because while you have physical life, there is hope. That brings us to notice, secondly, that although there is this past problem of a sinful, fallen mankind, Jesus then shows that he has the present power to address that past problem. Verse 25 reads, Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he, though he were dead, Yet shall he live. In these words, one of the seven I am statements of Christ, we have a demonstration of the power of the word of Christ. The words themselves, they have such a gravity, such an authority that could belong only to the creator of the universe. I am the resurrection and the life. Oh, who else could say that? But see how this powerful statement of the Lord is a corrective to Martha's understanding of that resurrection to come. Notice that the resurrection to come, what he is saying is that is not where the power lies. A wonderful day it will be, yes, but that is not where the power lies. Rather, the power of the resurrection is present now in the person of Jesus Christ. When Martha spoke of the future resurrection, what she had in mind was that day when Lazarus's body would be resurrected to life once again, his soul would re-enter into its body. Now, as far as that goes, she was correct. That is indeed what will, what will occur on that day. But in response to Martha saying, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day, Jesus demonstrates that the resurrection is more than simply the reunion of the soul and the body. What he shows is this. He is the resurrection. The emphasis in these words is in the present. In response to Martha speaking of a resurrection to come, Jesus is saying, I am now that resurrection. 
and I will continue to be that resurrection forever. The power of the resurrection is present now in the person of Jesus Christ. Just as death, we could say, is the memorial of sin, so the day of resurrection to come will be something of the memorial of Jesus Christ as the resurrection himself, as the life. Oh, you see, friends, this is the precise answer to the real problem. Think back to that text in 1 Corinthians 15. For as in Adam all die, there's the past problem. Even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Oh, there's the present power. By saying, I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus is pointing to himself alone as the means by which any may be made to live. But notice that not only is Christ the power of the resurrection himself, but also that being the case. What does that mean? Well, it means that all true life, all true life derives from Jesus Christ. I am the life. The word life is the exact opposite of the death that he speaks of in the text. And so as the death that he spoke of, though he were dead, he wasn't speaking of some mere physical death. So here when he says, I am the life, he is not speaking of mere physical life. Rather, it is that all that is truly life, Jesus is life itself. What's really in view here is that Jesus does not derive his life from any other source. As God, he is entirely self-sufficient. Even viewed within the economy of the Trinity, that's the case. And we read in John 5, for as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. Christ himself demonstrated his power over all life when he was uh, in reference to his own earthly life, when he was on earth, he said, no man taketh it from me. Speaking of his earthly life, his physical life, no man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. Jesus Christ has the power of all life. He is all life. But Christ's power over life extends well beyond even his own humanity. He's the source of all life. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist, the apostle said in Colossians. In Hebrews 1.3, he is spoken of as upholding all things by the word of his power. There is no true life of any sort apart from this vivifying power of Jesus Christ, who is the life. I am the resurrection and the life. That being so, we are then faced with this inevitable implication in our text. That the access to that spiritual resurrection, or access to that true enduring life, is only through Jesus Christ and none other. The words are emphatic in the original language. 
He says, I, even I alone, am the resurrection and the life. There is no other way of life. Christ is the only giver of this true life. And the way to access this true life, we are told in our text, is for he that believeth in me. Faith in Jesus Christ as the only redeemer of sinful fallen man. That is the only way by which dead sinners may access true life. Notice the sequence in the words. Jesus says, I am the resurrection. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Jesus says, I am the life, and whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. We will look at that last clause in just a moment, but the key point to grasp here for now is this. The resurrection from spiritual death must happen before there can be any life. And Jesus Christ is the only resurrection. He alone is the giver of life. He alone can make dead sinners live. Commenting on this text, John Calvin makes this comment. Resurrection comes before life. Because resurrection from death to life naturally becomes before the state of life. Now the whole human race is plunged in death. And therefore, no man will be a partaker of life until he is risen from the dead. So here we have Martha. And she has her real, tangible, heartbreaking loss. Her brother has died. She knows that he will rise again at the last day, at the resurrection. Somehow that doesn't seem to give her enough comfort. She knows it to be true. She believes it to be true, but she still grieves. But now Jesus shows her that not only is the physical death of her brother this powerful illustration of the spiritual death of the entire human race, but now he shows her that the resurrection of which she speaks is not a mere future event. Rather that he himself is that resurrection. He is the very essence of true life itself, and he is there. Now, she has that comfort now. Now we see what hope and what comfort there is even this very day for those who mourn, for those who are bereaved. Yes, for those that die in the Lord, they will be reunited body and soul again one day. But the power of that resurrection is a present power. Jesus Christ is the source of all true life. And he is present now. For the child of God mourning the loss of some loved one, he is your present help in your time of trouble. He has the power of life now, and he gives a life that far surpasses any bodily life. It is on the now that Christ would have us to focus. He is present now. He is present in this gathering with his life-giving power. Now, I am the resurrection. I am the life. And what of the dead sinner in the gathering? 
This is, friends, this evening, oh, catch this, if nothing else, this is the blessed hope of the gospel, that there is hope for dead sinners. For this fallen human race, this is good news indeed. Yes, the fall has resulted in your eternal death. In that eternal death falling over this entire race. Yes, this spiritual death has begun now. And it will be finally consummated in the day of judgment to come. When body and soul will be reunited. And those who have not had their sins forgiven in Christ will be cast into everlasting destruction. But there is a way to true life. There is a resurrection now from that dead spiritual life, from that de spiritual death. The resurrection is now, and Jesus Christ is the resurrection, and Jesus Christ is the life. And he that believeth in him, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Do you see it, friends? Dead sinner, do you see it? There is a way to life. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he is the present power to address the past problem of sin. But more than that, we notice thirdly this evening, that Jesus promises that this life that he gives, this life that he is, will endure forever in a future hope. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. This brings us this evening to the ultimate response to Martha's grief. All along, you see, Jesus knew that he would be raising Lazarus from the dead. He knew that's what he was going to do next. But he didn't come to Bethany simply to make one dead man live again. He didn't come to have one bundle of bones and sinew to breathe. He came for the glory of God that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. And as remarkable though the raising of Lazarus was, well, he was raised on this occasion that he might die again, another physical death. What Christ has been speaking of here far surpasses any earthly resurrection, any temporary resurrection of the body. It goes well beyond the return of breath to a body for a time. No, the life that Christ is speaking of here is a life that shall never end. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Notice that this life begins now but it lasts forever. The life that Christ gives to the believer is life that will never end. This life is given now. Now, Jesus says, he is the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Not I will be, not I have been. I am and I will continue to be forever. The resurrection is a spiritual resurrection. It's from deadness to life. And the life that is in view is eternal life. Yes, beginning now. Beginning now in this life. Lasting for eternity. 
There is no sense here in which there are two lives in view for the believer. If you're a child of God this evening, you are living now in Christ. And the life that you now have in Christ will never end. It is that same life that you will live in glory forever. See the significance of this for Martha. Her brother Lazarus was a believer in Christ. And Christ is saying then that the life that Lazarus had was true life. The life that he had was life that will never end. Yes, he would raise him from his physical death, but it would be but a continuation of the spiritual life that he already had. And it would be that same spiritual life that he would continue to have without intermission, even through his next physical death. This is the promise of, life, of the life that now is and of that which is to come, as Paul wrote to Timothy. The life that now is and of that which is to come. As the resurrection and as the life then, the life that Christ gives is a life that begins now and a life that never ends. But this means that that resurrection at the last day is not the beginning of life, but rather it's the consummation of this true life in the reunion of body and soul and the glorification of that body forever. Martha was correct to say that Lazarus would be raised up on that day, but what she missed was this, that rising again would be the completion, not the beginning of new life in Christ. This is the true perspective that the believer ought to have of death. Death is not the end. It's not even an interval. Rather, this is what the scripture describes as mortality being swallowed up of life. You see the point there? Physical death is being swallowed up by life. Life that shall never end. Lazarus's body may well have been dead, but Lazarus was living on. But in that day, in that final day, this life will be made complete. It will be no longer a life in a mortal frame. This tabernacle of this body will be packed up. And a new, enduring, glorified body will be prepared. And then for the believer they shall be like Christ, for they shall see him as he is. Oh, the life that we have now as believers will be the life that we have forever, but that life will improve with glory. Martha saw her present problem. Lazarus was dead. She believed that one day there would be a power, a power to come, a future power. But Christ shows her that the problem was a past problem, that the power was present in him, and that there is this glorious future hope. But notice as we close this evening, that this eternal hope is reserved only to those who are living and believing in Christ now. This is the crunch point tonight, friends. 
This is where the rubber meets the road. Yes, doesn't it sound delightful to hear of a life that never ends? But it only begins now. It cannot begin then. In that day, when the bodies will be raised, and the souls and the bodies will be reunited, there is no beginning of life then. True life must begin now. The text reads, He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. By the whosoever in the text, it's expansive. Everyone who believes, everyone who has this life, has it forever. But only those who believe and only those who live will have this life forever. As we close then this evening, this is the key point. Do you have this life? Do you have it now? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you trust him as your only hope of salvation? Do you trust him as the resurrection, as the life, as the only source of true life? There is no life outside of Christ. There is no hope in any other person. There is no hope in your own efforts. There is no hope in your own works in your own church attendance, in your own good deeds. There is no prospect, friends, of life later. The gospel of Jesus Christ is offered now. Only those who receive Christ in this life have any hope in the next. As a man or a woman or a child in the gathering born into this world, you inherit this age-old problem of sin. You are a sinner. You're a born sinner. You have the guilt of your own sin added on top. You are dead in your trespasses and sins, and this is a fact. It's an historical fact. It's a past problem for you. You cannot go back and undo it. You're guilty. But Jesus Christ says, I am the resurrection for dead guilty sinners. Jesus Christ says, I am the life for dead guilty sinners. Christ and Christ alone can make dead sinners live. And everyone who believes on him will live. And they will live forever. As we close this evening then. We'll close with how the Savior closed. Believest thou this? Believest thou this? There is only one answer of hope to that question. And the Holy Spirit has recorded it for us in these words. Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world.
Trust him tonight, friend. The Son of God. The resurrection and the life. The one that came into the world to save sinners. Amen. It's time for prayer. Our gracious God, we bow in thy presence. We pray, O God, that thou would take what has been of thyself. And thou would apply it by the power of the Holy Spirit to every soul gathered in thy presence. Lord, we pray that thou would comfort the bereaved. We pray that thou would edify the child of God and build them up in their faith. We pray that thou would convert the lost guilty sinner. O Lord, we pray even now for signs following the preaching of the word that thy spirit would work in the regenerating of dead souls and the bringing from death unto life. Lord, we pray that the solemnity of these words would linger on in the hearts of everyone that hears them. Lord, how we pray that thy will would be done. We pray, O oh God, for the salvation of the sinner. Surely that is why we preach the gospel. That's what we long for as the people of God, as thy servants. But Lord, we pray that thou would take the seed and that thou would use it for thine own purposes, that thy word would not return unto thee void, whether it be a savor of life unto life or death unto death. We submit ourselves to thee. By thy word we pray. Forgive us for any words said amiss. Forgive us for all of our sins. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.